0: Art, comedy, pop culture, and much more. You're listening to ACPN.
1: Okay, here we go.
0: Something, something, something. Okay, here we go. Hey, everybody. It is time for a 2021 edition of the Something Something Cast. Something Something Cast. James Ann, Podcast Rob. Happy New
1: Year. <laughs> What's going on? It is This is the first episode of 2021. Yes, we took our... You know, we took our little break. We took our hiatus.
0: We hope you guys enjoyed some of the best of uh, stuff we've thrown out there. Um, yeah, so we have a whole new run of show ideas and show thingies that we are going to be throwing at you. So we hope you we hope you get a dig on. Uh, this week, though, we are starting with uh, one of our classic uh, listy sort of episodes.
1: Um, why don't you take it away? Yeah, kind of bringing it back to basics to start off the new year. We're going back to one of our listicle episodes. Uh, we are discussing this episode, our top six, because we can't do five. You know, we're stupid like that. Uh, we have to break the mold in some way. Top six movie deaths. Now, these aren't like, you know, we didn't put them through like a points filter and determines with some sort of scientific accuracy. Accuracy, which was the best movie death ever filmed. No, these are our personal take on our top six favorite, most impactful, most remembered movie deaths. We know there's more than six. We narrowed it down for you. I have one honorable honorable mention. I think Hatton has one or two, but that's what we're bringing for you today, our top movie deaths.
0: Yes, and, and to clarify on this, this because mine range the gamut. This isn't simply like the ones that made me cry the most, or, oh the, no, the, the coolest. It's, these are just it's a hot mix of movie deaths that evoke some emotion. Yes, in some way.: Yes. Well, then I guess uh, I will start us off. Sounds good. Um, I am starting with a classic movie, Death, that what I find interesting about this movie, Death, is that in hindsight, it's more important than when it was initially like when the script was written. Nobody knew this death was going to have some sort of value to it. But uh, during the filming of this classic movie, um, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so they were filming this movie at the time and the actor who was portraying this character was was getting ready to bounce um, because it's a stupid zombie flick and this is before there was such a thing as a stupid zombie flick. And he realized that like, wait a minute, at the end of this movie, like the the last man standing is is a person of color and then he gets shot. Um, I am of course talking about Ben from Night of the Living Dead, 1968, the first zombie flick as played by Dwayne Jones.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: What, in hindsight, it has such sort of a a racial overtone and such a a deeper political message. Um, But Romero, from what I understand, didn't have that intent. It was just Ben was the last guy and they think he's a zombie, so they shoot him. Um, But, in this sort of Midwest bumbly town with the bumbly sheriffs we've seen on TV, the last thing they see is a black dude stand up and they shoot him. It, it had such more political machinations in hindsight that uh, it's such a great moment in the movie and then sort of shocked me when I first saw it, I, albeit I was like a teenager. So there's my first one Night of the Living Dead. What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I think it's a great call. Uh, it did have it did have impact, like you said, kind of on two different levels in uh, almost two different two different segments of time. There, sure. Uh, a because of what was going on politically at the time in the real world, and B because of the. Kind of undertone implications of how that went down in the movie. Uh, yeah, good call. Makes me what? It makes my it makes my, <laughs> it makes the first one on my list sound kind of stupid in comparison. No,
0: look, I I honestly I could have made that number one and ended on a dour note. I've been known to do that before, so I put that one right at the front, and we get dumber as we go.
1: Okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> Makes me feel a little bit, you know, not overdressed or underdressed or whatever. (laughs) Do I need to wear pants for this? Uh, So my number six, uh, we have mentioned it before. I have mentioned it before. I think we actually brought it up on our uh, Halloween episode with Fear. Uh, It is probably one of the most memorable horror movie deaths that I first saw when I was when I was a teenager watching uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for the first time. Ah. Uh, it is Glenn on the bed getting sucked into the bed with the ginormous redonkulous geyser of blood that splatters up and sprays across the ceiling. Uh, it will never not be burned into my brain. Uh like I'm I even just talking about it, I'm playing that scene back in the back of my brain pan with acute clarity. Smooch. Because once you see it, you don't ever unsee it. And you will never forget that scene. Because out of all of the crazy and wild, weird, Freddy dreamness that was in that first movie. Which was more of a legitimate horror movie before it became more of like a horror fantasy kind of movie once three, yeah, four, five movie. and them all came around. Uh that was probably the pinnacle of the what the fuck out of that whole first movie. So mm-hmm. number six call. on my list, Glenn and the Bed Vomit.
0: Yeah, I um in doing my research for this went through, you know, other people's like hundred greatest deaths in movies. And I was trying to figure out if there's a horror movie I want to put on there. And just as a quick aside, let me tell you, it's so easy to tell how many people haven't actually watched saw. Okay. Because on a bunch of lists, I saw the girl with the reverse bear trap. Right. She survives dummies. Anyway, Um, moving on to my number five. Now we get, uh, I guess, we have the next serious one. I told you, they get they get sillier as we go. And maybe none of them are actually silly. Ugh. Anyway, this one is a tearjerker. This is one that when I first saw it, I immediately had to go and read the series of books. I immediately needed to know whether this was one of King's adaptations that worked or one of King's adaptations that didn't. Um, it is the end sequence Of the Green Mile, John Coffey. Okay. Um, Played by Michael, the amazing Michael Clark Duncan. Mm -hmm. We have come to know and love this character throughout the movie. He's just—he's like the quintessential gentle giant. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan was perfect. Like there was no other actor that could have played him more perfectly. And you learn throughout the movie that he is innocent. And he has these sort of, he's, he's got Kings, you know, mystical, magical power, whatever that is. He's got the Shinnin. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so just when you get to the sequence where he, where he dies, where he walks the green mile, like your heart wrenches with every step and every actor in that film, all of them are watching. Like we couldn't save him. We tried. Nobody wants to hear us. He is, it's, it's just brutal. I remember distinctly crying, the first time I saw it. It, Green Mile. It's so, mm, like even thinking about it, the lights flicker and and you hear him like sort of, you see hear sniffling. It'll be it was a while before I could watch that movie a second time, and it still holds up.
1: I I personally haven't seen that movie yet, but I do remember seeing I do remember seeing those clips. Of of him, you know, walking with that pained look on his face, like he's near breakdown, and the lights flickering. And uh, what was it? Tom Hanks was the, uh, was yes. the guard, was the the prison guard there, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's on my list. I I I will I will eventually get around to seeing it. I I have not yet.
0: Across the board, I'm going to say it's probably the second best Stephen King movie, next to Shawshank Redemption. Okay. What you got?
1: So my number five comes from quite possibly my favorite movie of the 90s. Definitely my favorite movie of 1993, but one of my favorite movies, hmm. if not my favorite movie of the 90s. It was one of those movies where, you know how you had like a volcano in Dante's Peak? It was those, you know, like dueling movies with similar topics came out. Um, yeah. Kevin Costner came out with his version of a movie, and then in 1993, uh, we had Tombstone came out, and an endlessly quotable movie, amazing Western movie, phenomenal cast, but the death that sticks out to me the most is when Wyatt accepts a duel from Johnny Tyler, and he goes to go out and have this gunfight that he knows he's going to lose. And as an audience, we get to the spot and we see Johnny Tyler approach and there's Wyatt and Wyatt steps forward. And lo and behold, it is Doc Holliday. And it is that gunfight between Doc Holliday and Johnny Tyler. The entire movie as as ruthless or as good of a gunman as Doc has been, he's always been that kind of, I want to say, like, low-key. Like, he's sarcastic, but he's very kind of, like, low-delivery, kind of smooth-talk kind of guy. This mm. is one of the first, I think, the only scene possibly in the movie where, like, he kind of gets angry and screams, you know, it's it's the most uh, emotional and vocal that we've seen him. Uh, he's like he's sick as a dog. He's got the tuberculosis. He's a lunger. He's he's on you know on his last legs as it is, and right. he's out there waiting to shoot Johnny Tyler. And they're sitting there, you know, waiting. And you see the hands twitching by the guns, and they go to pull, and and Doc like hip shoots Johnny Tyler through the forehead. And it's just that long Johnny Tyler's staggered and he's coughing up blood. And Doc's just like, come on! Come on! You ain't no Daisy! You ain't no Daisy! Like, yelling at him the whole time, you're just like, oh my god! It's just, it's so well acted, and the characters were so awesome from the beginning. The cast was just amazing. Um, yeah, Doc Holiday killing Johnny Tyler, that's what I'm going with with my number five.
0: I I can't argue it. It's notoriously, when this topic comes up, Tombstone is one of those movies that still sits in my, like, I don't remember if I've seen it, and I'm pretty sure that means I haven't, and I
1: know that makes me less of a man. <laughs> All right, so we're going to have to have, like, a movie night one night, only you'll be watching Tombstone, and I'll be watching Green Mile. Excellent. I'm in. good. good, um, good
0: to jump to something a little lighter. This is a movie death from... It comes out of nowhere, but it cracked me up because you don't know if you saw it. Like, I I saw this movie on DVD, not in theaters, uh, to give it a time frame. So it was definitely a, wait a minute, did I miss something? Where did that happen? And John Travolta follows up with, Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. (laughs) And that's it. There's no, like, oh, my God. There's no horrifying. There's no, like, they're not screaming. The car doesn't swerve. Sam Jackson just keeps driving like Sam Jackson does. And Marvin is dead in the (laughs) backseat. And, like, that whole second act of Pulp Fiction is basically the story of how we cleaned up Marvin it's so brilliant and it totally disassociates the fact that this is a dude that was in this movie for a little while. Like they're joking about being on brain detail. They're, they're lining it with sheets. It's just fucking hysterical. Marvin's death in Pulp Fiction took me like, it surprised me out of nowhere. Um, probably the most on this list other than one other other than my number one. Um, just like shock the system. And every time I see it, I laugh. It's so good. I shot
1: Marvin in the face. (laughs) Just so blah. Now the, the funny thing is, is that like Jules and Vincent have been so cavalier with the weapons throughout the movie up to that point that nobody really like you, you, there's no, uh Oh, uh oh! Right. When he when Vincent kind of turns around and is ta- like from the passenger seat and is talking to Marvin in the back seat, and he's still holding his gun and just kind of has it casually draped over like the backrest of the seat, you know, it's just like at that point, it's just like, oh, he's got his gun; it's a prop; he's holding it. And then it's the the pothole bang, and all of a sudden we just see the brain against the back of the wall, and everybody in the theater was just like, <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. And then you get that line. Oh, I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> I, I believe, I, I, I'm i trying to find it real quick, but I was fairly certain that I had read somewhere that that scene was actually supposed to be filmed wildly differently. Like really? It, like it was supposed to be a shot to the throat and it was supposed to be that whole... Oh, For like minutes just dragging on as they figured out what they were, you know, they're arguing in the front seat still not swerving, not anything while he's still (laughs) in the back seat. I want to say I I remember reading that somewhere. I can't currently find it right now, but I want to believe that that was the case. And knowing uh,
0: Tarantino, I mean, you can build that scene in your head really quickly. Just yeah, them yeah. having the conversation, completely ignoring like the hand on the back of his head. <laughs>
1: yeah, as, as Marvin chokes to death. But, uh, no, that's a great call. That was that is such a good scene. <laughs>
0: because yeah, every time they have a gun in the mo- like, and they have they fire at people, they shoot people. They're such intent. Like, when when they're holding a gun, they're going to shoot a gun. Or they're threatening to shoot a gun. This is none of that. Right. This is just dicking around. (laughs) Pulp Fiction. Mobbing.
1: Okay, here we go. Hang on. Oh, hit it. Uh, So, actually, it says in the movie Pulp Fiction, and this is from from a uh, Reddit thread called Shitty Movie Details... Uh, in the movie *Pulp Fiction*, Marvin's death was not in the original script. Actor John Travolta pulled the trigger on his gun, not knowing he had been given "no stop." That's ridiculous. I'm not. I'm not even going to continue reading that. Okay. It says. It says actor John Travolta, not knowing he had been given a real pistol, accidentally shot Phil Lamar's head off. Quentin Tarantino liked it so much he decided to keep it. That's obviously not true. I'm just ignore all of that. That's what happens when you don't vet the the article before you fucking read it on the podcast. None of that happened. John Travolta did not shoot Phil LaMar in the face. I, I just love the idea that 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 you now have to add
0: on to that that now we have a fake Phil LaMar thing that like Quentin had to go find a second Philomar, arguably one of the most exactly. popular. And now we talented have to dub voice Travolta's actors.
1: voice saying Marvin and not Phil. Oh my gosh, shot <laughs> Phil in the face.
0: And John, that means John Travolta said so cavalier. Oh I shot
1: Philomar in the face. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it does change the entire tone of the second act of Pulp Fiction, though.
0: Yeah, it does. It really does. It becomes Samuel Jackson and John Travolta trying to stop them <laughs> Cover, being arrested. Covering for up the f- murder of murder. Phil
1: Lamar. Oh, you sending in the wolf? <laughs> uh, whew. All right. Not got? doing that again. So, uh, number four on my list. Um, we have, you and I, both together and separately, worked our fair share of Renaissance festivals yeah mm. uh, there there have been underlying themes and underlying movies that have kind of been some of the the backbone and the the spinal fluid of our Renaissance festival existence. Uh, one of those movies being Highlander <laughs> um, <laughs> ah very good. so for me, uh the the final scene of Highlander it's that showdown between Connor McLeod and Clancy Brown as the Kurgan Brilliant. Uh, when they're fighting in that that warehouse and uh, i mean let's be honest the sword fighting when you're you know when you're a 15 16 year old or you know 17 18 year old even some early 20s uh, renaissance festival goer and patron uh, the the fights were awesome. In reality, oh, yes. they were, hmm, okay. <laughs> you, uh, you look back and you're like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, but it's that scene where you see the silhouette of them in that dark warehouse against all those windows and the Kurgan comes rushing in and McLeod kind of sidesteps and does that swipe across the neck, and then Clancy Brown kind of runs up to the camera and smiles and smirks, and then ever so slowly his head just lolls back, and you see the light coming out of the throat slash as he gets decapitated, and then the windows all break and <laughs> like crazy. Um, probably, I mean, obviously the best movie of the Highlander franchise because they you know went downhill from there, but. Yes the perfect ending and and it, it was the equivalent of of rocky knocking out drago at the end of rocky 4 like mm-hmm. that was the emotional and and hero build up of that ending to highlander because even though you kind of i mean You do. No, it's a good guy. You know, going into, you know, going into most movies like that, that, you know, the bad guy's going to die. The good guy's going to win. But it was like, it was still, it still had that feel to it. Like, whoo, whoa, he got away with that one. You know, it, it, it was never that. Oh, cool. That, That was the scene that I was waiting for. It was, it was just well done. And it was, it was impactful. And I loved that movie Highlander and I could still watch it today, but uh to me that was that was one of the best scenes in that movie and since the highlander was a big part of my uh youth and young adult in my renaissance festival existence mm-hmm. uh i'm putting that at my number four
0: I, I I think that's a good one to put there i mean that movie i want to say i saw that when i was probably 12 or something it was on hbo and i was like oh this sounds interesting and like I think from that moment on, that sealed the deal that I was going to work in a Renaissance festival with how much I enjoyed that and Queen music. Right. It was just all right. Well, I guess now I'm a renny. Shit. Um, but yeah. Oh, with the 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 lightning coming off the the swords, mm-hmm. um, the sparks and stuff. Did you know they elect they were they were regularly electrocuting
1: themselves during that sword fight? I'm I'm not surprised.
0: Because they were in like, it's like a wet floor so they could have those big splashy effects and they had like car batteries strapped to them.
1: I'm not, I'm really not surprised at all. Cause no. like when you start to read the details of the subsequent movies that came out, like I think Christopher Lambert was kind of like, I, his, he has vision issues and I think he was yes. like, so when he was filming the second one with, uh, Michael Ironside, like there were reports that Ironside was terrified through some of the sword fight scenes because, <laughs> you know, that's why a lot of it was, uh, a lot of those sword fight scenes were very, uh, like overhead chops. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not swinging at your neck. I'm swimming. I'm swinging at a spot two feet over your head and I'm going to block a spot two feet over my head. So all of the, the sword fight swiping, it's like, you know, the old Errol Flynn fencing where everything is done three feet above us. So even if yes. we miss, there's no fear that we're going to take somebody's eye out. Um, it was,
0: it was a, it was a throw number one given our old yeah, fight exactly. choreography training.
1: But the, uh, but yeah, the, the, the fight choreography was nothing to, to, to write home about, but the scene was pretty baller at the end. They made the Kurgan out to be just such a badass. Oh, and yes. even through that final fight, like, you know, McLeod never had the upper hand on him the entire time. So it really was kind of one of those they're pretty evenly matched. This could go either way. Oh. Okay. Alright, yeah. cool. McLeod just won. Yeah. It was it, it did kind of come out of nowhere in it, but yeah, that's what I'm going with, Highlander. I, I mean, from the minute you
0: see Kurgan. You're like, oh, he's the bad guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's got a big dragon helmet with a, the the tuft, and he's got a voice like somebody put his face in a blender. He's, yeah, he's must be the he's the baddie. All right, we're moving on to my horror movie one because I would not be a sure thing without me having a horror movie in here somewhere. Um, this is so I have two actual horror movies on here, but both of these. We'll get to the other one when we get there. but this one isn't a good movie. Uh, okay Like over it's a fine movie. It's okay. it's a it's a passable horror flick during the era of like a lot of horror flicks. but if I was I, like i I don't even know whether you've seen it and I can tell you when this happens in the film and I think you'll know exactly what movie it is. It's the sequence that happens before the, it's all in the first two minutes of the movie. Then the movie happens. About 20 people get split
1: in two. No, nothing. Ghost ship. I, I was going to say ghost ship. It was, it was, it wasn't that early in the movie. It's the, it's in the first, it is the, it's like before the credits
0: no oh i am almost i mean if i unless i distinctly forget how ghost ship worked
1: yeah no it was because it was it was once they get on the ship like the first 20 minutes is them finding the ship and it's no but this is what happened before that this is, no, but I, I don't think, so. but they didn't see that, that scene didn't happen until there, until the, the, the recovery guys are on the ship. And it's the one chick who's, uh, it was Juliana Margulies who's following the little girl around and kind of re-experiencing that as it happens. I'm, I'm almost entirely positive that did not so just to, you know what? Uh, I, yeah. Cause I'm reading, I'm reading the rundown of it now and you, Because I'm might, yeah, I just, it does. Ahead. It does happen in the beginning, but I could have swore that we kind of re that scene again. We when, probably do. When she meets the little girl, but yeah, yeah. you know, I stand because I, <sighs> I was pretty
0: sure that it was cause that movie sort of sets you in, be like, okay, we're ready for this. Like it's, is good. Um, because the, everybody's dancing, they're they're all on the deck, they're all drinking martinis, and and I don't know, whatever they did in the early 1960s. Um, and that you just you hear the, the cable, and people are still dancing, and then a glass shatters, and then just one by one they all just sort of slough off each other. It's just Brilliant brutality. Um I, I have probably watched that sequence more times than I've seen Ghost Ship, which is honestly where I was like, maybe I'm wrong because I know I've watched that sequence. No, because but-
1: I, I actually have the video of it pulled up and the lounge singer is singing during the opening credits, like the opening actor okay. credits are going across the bottom as she's singing and then she kind of raises her hand and does the big, huge finale, and we see the cable go, you know, whipping across, and we see everybody kind of look at fear, and then we see a close-up of the cable get really taut, and it's covered mm-hmm. in, like, red goop, and then we go back to the dance floor, and everybody's kind of looking around very slowly in shocked surprise of what the hell happened, and then they start sliding in half. So, yep, you, you are correct. I stand corrected. Cool. I thought it was later... I thought it was later in the movie. I thought it was when the the they get onto the ship and they're experiencing what the ghosts experienced and that right. the, that she caught that. But nope, you're correct. Right in the beginning of the movie. Here it is. Watching it right now. I mean now. and still, still a great that, scene.
0: Uh, that would lead to a very good episode of, of movies that the opening scene overset themselves for the rest of the film. Because the rest of Ghost Ships, okay. A it's a it's a fun ghost movie. So ghost ship. Hang on, hang on, hang on a second. Oh, please.
1: Movies.
0: Yeah, right. it's going to the
1: list. Excellent.
0: Cool. Cause yeah. because I, nope. yeah, I saw one literally last week that like jumps to the top of my list.
1: Trailers that were better than the movies. Like I'm making oh, yes. a list in my head right now. It's not hard. <laughs> no, no, not at all.
0: There is a bunch of movies that I overpromise.
1: Oh yeah. All right, so my number three on the list. This is this is a movie from uh, a year and a half ago, 2019, and I am going to openly admit right here that this is the first time in an amazingly long time that. I had started to cry at a movie in a movie theater. Uh, The movie death that I am referring to is uh, Tony Stark. Ah! The the end of that Avengers endgame, when Tony snaps and kind of puts everything in the hero's hands so that Thanos is not victorious. And uh, we kind of know that his body can't really handle it because we know that the Hulk barely survived it when he had the the gauntlet on. So now we know that that Iron Man, Tony Stark has done this, and then we see the aftermath of that, of of Pepper holding him, Mm -hmm. and that whole... I'm not even going to describe it because if I start describing it... Uh, we all know the scene. We all know what happened. Exactly. We all, you know, and then there's the funeral afterwards, but seeing that happen in the theaters and like the movie watcher in me gets it. You know what I mean? Cool. This Mm -hmm. was the character story arc. They had that whole discussion, uh, in like the first Avengers movie. Where uh, Tony and Cap get into it, and uh, you know Cap tells him that you'll never be the guy to jump on a grenade for somebody else, um, and Ugh. so that that whole character arc kind of comes full circle. Uh, and we also knew kind of at the time that uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s contracts were coming up for the you know for full films for the Avengers movies, you know, as a whole and everything. Uh, so it made sense to do what they did. And I think if we go back to our episode that we did with the Two Girls One podcast about our Avengers Infinity War predictions, I think we may have said that we were probably predicting that Tony was going to be one of the ones to go. I'm um, sure
0: one of us did, most definitely, because we all took, I mean, I. I think going into that movie, you, you had your guess as to who was going to bite it because somebody had to. Like, this, they're not going to walk away from what is a 10 movie franchise and not give you some sort of emotional
1: oomph at the yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, somebody had to go. At yeah. least one person had to go. Um, and we got a couple, but that was the one that hit me the most. Uh, oh, understood. Tony Stark slash Iron Man uh, for Endgame.
0: It's brutal. I, I'm sure. I don't remember, you know, whether I was openly weeping in the theater. I know I was sniffly, but I'm, I saw that probably first weekend, maybe right after, because I don't like packed theaters. But, um, you know, it's one of those sequences where you just listen and the whole theater's. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we kind of we kind of lucked out. We have friends up in New Hampshire, and they uh, they bought tickets for us because uh, they have reserved seating at this one theater up near them. And I think we went to like a four o'clock in the afternoon show, two o'clock in the afternoon show kind of thing, but we were re- with reserved seating, and uh, the theater wasn't packed. It was maybe half full. But, yeah, when that happens, like, it was, it was definitely sitting there in the seat watching it. <laughs> yeah. and like, you're trying to hold it together and, you know, because you don't want to be that guy who's, you know, mid-40s sitting in a movie theater going, the Tony, man, the Iron Man, but <laughs> So you're you're kind of, you're holding it together and you're, I get some, my eye, itchy a little bit. and But throughout the rest of the theater, you hear the same thing, like... <laughs> How can you not? And you're like, okay, cool, I'm not the only one, but I'm still not going to be like the first to just let the damn loose, you know, I'm not going to, uh, 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 that wasn't going to happen. Nobody did that, but there was a <laughs> lot of that whole. There was, I, a lot, a, there was a lot of that.
0: I got. I have a similar story for my honorable mention, but. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I will. I, I have a similar story for my next one, too, unfortunately. <laughs> So I will lighten,
0: I'll lighten this up before we, we bring it back oh, down. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, this is probably the death sequence that I still sort of pantomime and joke about when there's an over-the-top death sequence in a movie or in acting or somebody's pretending to die or, you know, whatever the improv, some bit. This is my go-to death and it is from a movie that I I still really like. It's a love or hate it sort of movie. Um, 1992. Wow, it got a lot from 92. Buffy uh, the Vampire Slayer. The original, the Joss Whedon movie, movie. Right, right. Um, in it, there is a vampire who dies. And the scene is about to start. He, he tips over, just flump, dead. He's a. About, they're about to move scenes, and he, like, sits right back up. <sighs> uh, it is Paul Rubens, a.k.a. P.U.E. Herman. Um, so for the next probably minute and a half, he's holding the stake in his chest and going, ah! Uh, uh, uh. Uh. And then even after the credits... If you watch To the Stinger, there's one last where they show this empty scene and out of you know it's coming. And you're like, ah ooh. I I wanna say that like Family Guy stole the knee bit from Paul Rubens doing okay. this because it's such a it goes on long enough to be like, okay, we get it, to being really funny again. Um I I I will regularly any over-the-top death Ah, so much fun and he apparently improvised it
1: i'm not surprised
0: i mean yeah he's paul rooms is wonderful so to hear that like he had his death sequence and he probably was just supposed to go ah plump and he hammed it up for an extra two minutes
1: of, of footage love it and it and it's it it if that is the case and that nobody else broke and ruined that scene to have that to uh, you know become like a take two or a take three or a take four kind of thing. That's also pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. So let me Buffy. ask. Th- let me yeah. ask this then. Uh, yeah, hit it. Because you mentioned it's a it was you know Joss Whedon film. Was there like a dramatic lull or pause right before that happened? Because he's kind of big on that.
0: No, I'm I mean he plays to comedy. That movie plays more to comedy than like the series did. Okay. Um he's not the main boss. He's he's sort of the the snivelling underling. Um so if there was a moment of seriousness, it's brief. It's okay. it's very like, you know, now I've got you, and then she comes in and just swamp and he's like, ah. And he looks down at it. Oh. And it continues to go. So, gotcha. I don't know. I I don't think it's too much drama.
1: Whedon is kind of big on the whole. Hey, we're going to have these big action, you know, adrenaline-filled moments, and then everybody kind of gets through unscathed. And whew, there's a pause. That was pretty bang. And then something horrible happens to somebody. Like right after everybody thinks that we're through everything. Yeah. Um, which it, cause that brings me to my number two, uh,
0: <laughs> I had a feeling, yeah,
1: uh, w- this, uh, w- friends of mine had turned me onto this TV show, uh, after it had already been pulled off the air. Uh, my, my friend fact check Manny, uh, had brought over, uh, the DVD collection of Firefly and said, you have to watch this. And I'm like, okay, Why? And he said, because they're making a movie based off of this, and it comes out in, like, a month, and you have to watch this so you can be caught up and know what's going on, because we're all going to go see this movie together. And I'm like, cool. So we put in the first episode, which was the actual Whedon first episode, that, you know, hour and a half long uh, craziness that Fox didn't use as the first episode. and. hmm it was rough. I didn't really follow along too well, so I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. That first episode was nice. I'll, I'll, I'll watch the rest later. And I didn't put the next episode on uh, until the uh, next day, and literally powered through the entire rest of the season in one day after that. Uh, so we all went to the midnight showing of Serenity, uh, Joss Whedon film, 2005, and the crew of the Serenity have painted Serenity red. They've draped dead bodies around it. They're trying to get past uh, the Alliance ships uh, and the operative, and they're bringing the Reavers with them, and it's this giant, huge firefight, and Wash is just weaving and bobbing and soaring and leaf on the winding through all the ships, and Crash lands this you know, Serenity, and it the ship is a character in and of itself. I mean, oh, yes. when when that thing crash lands and skids to a halt and it's shedding landing gear and and, you know wings and rockets and everything like the the audience was just like oh my god this is horrible they're tearing the ship to pieces and the ship kind of slides to a halt yep we made it through we're good and fact check man he goes oh no <laughs> because he's seen enough joss whedon vehicles yeah. to know this is not over this is what he's wanting you to believe And with that red blinking light in the cockpit, Wash smiles and looks up at Mal. I am a leaf on the wind. Watch. And the fucking Mm -hmm. log comes right through the window. And it's not even like, oh, but wait, we can say no. It was, you know, telephone pole through the chest. And it was just, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And it was rough. But oh, yeah. I, I remember in hindsight watching that and people in the theater were just like, <gasps> no, wash, like screaming at the screen. But I just remember that very slight pause. Everybody in the theater kind of, <sighs> and just very faintly from like four chairs away because there were like 10 of us that went just hearing Fat check Manny go, oh no. <laughs> <sighs> it's, especially because it's, it's Alan
0: Tudick. Yeah. And he's beloved. Like you can have your opinions as to whether Mal's a good guy or not, or whether uh, what's her face is, is a crazy person or whether the doctor's stupid or you know, any of that. You can have your arguments about anything in that. <clears throat> the relationship between wash and what's her face is like the heart of the
1: God damn show. Well, yeah, Zoe and Wash, the Zoe, the, 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 the relationship of their, their marriage is amazing. Um, like, the backstory that you get from Wash's character and, like, yeah, there, there can be questions. There is no question that Mal is a good guy. There is a question of how pragmatic Mal is. Because right, Mal yes, will course. make decisions that need to be made and he will not hesitate to make decisions that need to be made. But that being said, like, if you look at war stories... Uh, when him and Wash had gotten captured by Niska, and, you know, th- they're getting tortured, and Mal is intentionally egging Wash on, telling him what, he, you know, I'm, I'm going to make love to your wife when you die, so you better not die, because I'm going to go take her right on your bed, kind of thing, mm-hmm. to keep Wash, you know, around, so that he doesn't just pass out, and you're just like, that's, not right, but it's working. Like, <laughs> but yeah, so but it, it builds that bond. So, anybody who had seen the TV show, knowing the the tightness of that group uh, and how that crew was, you know, family to each other, and then you see that scene and it was just, I mean, still to this day, somebody will make a I'm a leaf on the wind joke on social media, Twitter, in person, whatever, and people are just like, mm mm, too soon. <laughs> mm Too soon. 15 years ago. Don't care. Yeah. Too soon. <laughs> and then so the there was uh there was a round table uh that they had did uh like a video round table of the, the actors and uh it, may, it was it, it might have been a video renter, might have been in the extra features on the DVD, but there's a point where they're kind of they're they're filming the, the, the table reads for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Alan Tudyk is joking, like that. Did I? I don't think I have a complete script. I don't. I don't have anything <laughs> after after page twenty eight. Is ah. that? And everybody else is like, "Oh, um, that's so weird." I'm not. Must be a mistake or something. Uh, let me just push on through and see where yeah. it takes us. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Hoban Wash Washburn in Serenity still up there. Still gets me.
0: I get it. I get it for as me who, you know, I don't put serenity as high as the rest of the universe. I enjoy it.
1: Well, You're um, just wrong.
0: I get it. <laughs> I also understand that that is so brutal. So now, talk. let's move to my brutality, my number one. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, this movie I don't think you've seen. I'm, I'm 99% sure you haven't seen it. And it's a movie that I don't like. <laughs> Which I find interesting. Fantastic. But it's I know. I'm 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 starting strong here. It's the problem is is that it's in a genre of horror film that I either really love or really hate. Um and this one happens to be about half a movie I really like and half a movie I really hate. It is Hereditary. It is it, it, they call them elevated horror. Uh, because there's sort of an artistic underground thing going on. You know, when they're really good, like Get Out, I think they're phenomenal. When they're really bad, they're hereditary. Because the the bit of this movie is it's about mourning loss. And the beginning of the movie starts with um, the mother of the family. Her mother has passed. And they're all dealing with this loss in their own individual ways. And the family clearly is broken. They're in. They're ill communicative. They don't deal well with each other. And so because they're mourning this loss and arguing with each other, it's just uncomfortable. And you kind of are like midway through the movie, you're like, what's going on? The younger girl, her name is Charlie. She keeps making this noise, this noise. And you're like, is this going to be like she's inhabited by ghosts? Is she like, like, what is, what's going on with this damn movie? And so the son who's despondent and doesn't want to take care of his little sister because the parents are, I think they go out somewhere or they're fighting or something. He goes, you know what? I'm going out. I'm going to a party. Charlie, you're coming with me. And she just kind of looks spacey and just goes. And so she goes to the party. He gets high with his friends and she eats a cookie or a brownie or something, and, and it's, it's established she has a nut allergy. So she starts, <coughs> and you're like, oh no. <coughs> so now Stoned Son has to take her, get in the car. They're on their way to the hospital. She's in the back seat, much like Marvin if he was shot in the throat. <coughs> And you're like, oh, this is going to be bad, this whole thing. And it's really uncomfortable. The whole movie has led up to this moment. It's just been uncomfortable people for a fucking half hour. And so you're like, okay, this is where shit's going to get bad. This is where the ghost is going to, or the demons, he's going to make a deal with Satan. He's going to... She unrolls the window to get some air, to try and, like, force air down her throat. And again, she's probably 10, 11 years old. And so she's sitting there doing that... Thing. and she sticks her head out of the window and all you see is a wood sign post and there's a crock <clears throat> part of the speakers there and she's gone and it like just stops the movie like, it, the movie even like cuts to he comes home and he just goes to bed and the parents don't notice that Charlie's missing. And the next morning, hey, where's Charlie? And from there, the rest of the movie goes on. But it is such a out of nowhere. And it's so 90 fucking degrees away from where you thought this movie was going. That it like cold water on the face, shock to the system. It doesn't matter whether I love the movie or hate the movie. Me and Wifey were just like, What did we just see? It's just cold water, it's brutal. So, that's the reason it's my number one hereditary.
1: Okay. Yep. I'm actually no. I see. I'm. i I have a clip of it up on the other screen. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's out of context. I'm just. It's just sure. that clip. But you know, I'm sure it has a lot different impact when you watch ah. the entire thing leading up to it. Yeah, because but it's I I can, I can. I get a sense of what you're talking about because it's very
0: slow. Otherwise, this movie is very drawn out because they want that moment to really just catch you unawares and this, um, well,
1: the, from what I'm seeing here, it's like a minute and 30 scene and it does kind of lead you into the, some bad's going to happen. Some bad's going to happen. And then it happens. And then there's literally like maybe 15 seconds of very, very far away shot in this, you know, at dead of night, there's no stars in the sky, there's no streetlights, and you just see very faint headlight and very faint taillight of the the SUV just parked, just stopped in the road. Mm-hmm. After like as you you know this guy's wrestling with the impact of what the fuck just happened. Yeah. Um so I'm sure, yeah, that watching the entire scene. Um would be uh, watching the entire movie would have a, would have a very uh, impactful feel on that scene. Good call. Thank you. Thanks. So for my number one, uh, I went with the definitive Christmas movie. Uh, Interesting. Mm hmm. Uh, mm <clears throat> It, I'm just going to get right to it. The actor did not know what was going to happen at the time. So, when the director let go of Hans Gruber's hand and he starts to fall, <laughs> that look of sheer panic and shock on uh, Alan Rickman's face was real and genuine. Because uh, it was like, okay, on three, I'm going to let go. One, ah! uh, So, yeah, Hans Gruber falling from the top of Nakatomi Plaza. At the end of Die Hard,
0: you really had uh, me on the hook for that. I'm like definitive Christmas movie. I mean, just, where's the lie? It, there's no lie. Thank I, you. I, I <laughs> it was just I was thinking like Miracle on 34th Street. No, <laughs> <laughs> just, thinking, like Street"? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gremlins is it it's a it's Christmas story? About Phoebe no. Kate's talking about her dad in the chimney. And... No, nope. Hans Gruber falling from the top of not falling from the top of Nakatomi Plaza. Come to the party. Have a few laughs.
0: I mean, I, I can't argue it.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I, I don't think anything else need be said, to be perfectly honest. It was, nope. It's, it's,
0: it is die hard. Yep. I'm with you. Um, I do have a couple quick honorable mentions. I'm not going to linger too long on them. Cool. Uh, I, they are both more of the animated variety, specifically um, every Pixar movie ever. It's, uh, I wanted to tell the story of Up, Because we went into that opening weekend, and if you've never seen Up, the first two minutes of this film is just watching someone die, and it's wonderful and sad and beautiful and heart-wrenching, and like I said, we saw probably opening weekend, first day or two it was out, so nobody knew what we were walking into. We were sitting there, it's a new Pixar film, we all love Pixar movies, we're going to sit, we're going to enjoy it, and it's just a, you get to watch this couple grow old together, and the wife pass, and it's just miserable. Um, But it's beautiful. It really is legit. And my other one is an equally sad cartoon, very different, Um, The the Little Squeaky Shoe in Roger Rabbit, because it's probably the darkest moment in that entire movie, and I love Roger Rabbit, but this little uh, judge- Doom is showing them how dip works, and he grabs a little squeaky shoe, opens a box, two little squeaky shoes come hopping out, and there's... And he's so happy to be out of his box, and he's just a wonderful little happy squeaky shoe, and then he melts the fucker. And, like, the shoe tries to do the bugs bunning, holding onto the side of the ledge of the pit, and he melts him. So,
1: yeah, the little squeaky shoe. Horrifying. <laughs> okay. Uh, my honorable mention. Uh, once again, kind of drifts back into, uh, my Renaissance Festival roots. It mm-hmm. is probably the reason that I started going to Renaissance festivals and got me hooked in that kind of of genre and time period. Well, time periods loose, but that kind of genre of of things of entertainment. Um it also I was first introduced to it uh when I was in junior high school and I had joined the Dungeons and Dragons Club, ah. which had just formed um and we got the okay to to watch this movie, which in hindsight, clearly the uh <laughs> the principal had no idea what was going on to show this to a, you know a bunch of fourteen and fifteen year olds. Uh, but the movie is Excalibur. Ah, oh, okay. I was like, is um, and
0: monsters." No,
1: amazing cast. Well, no. Hey, we're gonna show movie Excalibur. but It's uh, you know Arthur and Lord of the you know uh Sword in the Stone. Oh, yep. cool. Yeah, and uh, a grain gets raped by a dude in armor like five minutes in. But that's okay. Yep, yep. We we'll just you know gloss over that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm talking about the end scene. The end scene between Arthur and Mordred. Uh, I. I jokingly refer to it as the ground beef scene <laughs> because there's a scene, uh, Arthur's forces meet uh, Mordred and Morgan Le Fay's forces on the field of battle. Uh, I actually got to use an Excalibur reference on Twitter the other day. Uh, somebody had made some comment about... Uh, it, was, it was during all of the crazy... Election voting conspiracy things, and somebody said, You know, somebody was mm-hmm. being sarcastic, saying, Oh, look, uh, there's all this fog here, obviously keeping people from finding where the voting location is. <laughs> so, obviously, and I responded with a gif of Mordred going, Fog, Mother said there would be no fog. Um, <laughs> Which I'm but, throwing over their head. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think like two people were like, Oh, nice. Everybody was like, uh, What? Um, but it's the scene where Mordred stabs Arthur with his spear and Arthur grabs the spear and pulls himself down the spear, not off the spear, no down the spear towards Mordred. So he can stab Mordred with Excalibur, but it's like Mordred stabs him with the spear and Arthur grabs it and pulls himself forward. And out of his back is just like, Flump. It looks like a it looks like a canned ham that somebody hit with a baseball bat a bunch of times, or like five pounds of ground beef just like fell out of the back of Arthur's armor right. to kind of show the rest of that you know visceral wound that the spear is just taking flesh out of Arthur as it goes, and it was kind of an unnecessarily unscripted humorous part in that scene because you're just like, oh my god, oh he's. What was that, but uh There's lunch it, meat coming out of it. yeah, but it's it's very impactful, and i don't it's hard to say if the movie holds up, I mean, it doesn't in the grand scheme of things, I don't think Excalibur holds up uh, uh filming wise No, but, but it but I don't think you watch a movie like that now. this movie came out in eighty one you don't watch it going, oh, but it could be so much better made now or, oh, those effects are terrible. Like, you watch it f- through the lens of 1980s, of early yep. 1980s. And the cast is still baller. Um, I was going to so, say, it's the, it's the
0: same way that it is with all my 1970s sci-fi flicks. You don't watch them because of the CGI. You watch right. them because you accept that they're in spandex jumpsuits and everything is, like, flat
1: colors and most of them are gray. right. But uh, for those of you who have not seen this movie yet, I would recommend watching it uh, at least once. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, just so, so you can kind of go through life saying, hey, I've seen Excalibur. But uh, that's that's my honorable mention, the uh, Arthur Mordred lunch meat scene at the <laughs> end of the movie. Spam. What
0: about you folks out there? What uh, deaths did we miss? What are your favorite deaths from movies that you think, like, I don't know, either blow ours out of the water or how to impact on you, change the way you view the world, let us know. You can let us know on our website or on the Facebook or on the Twitter or on all the wonderful places. And you can get those links at the brand new, brand new fancy. Have you checked it out yet? Somethingcast.com. Absolutely. What else you got, my friend? I, you wrapped it all up. Put a nice I little know. bow on it. I did. And that was also so I'm, I'm sure you guys realize sometimes we record things a little out of order. The website's not done yet at the time of recording this. So this is a time bomb that I've set myself. And if that website does not look different, aside from the fact that I'm being oh, yelled it, at by Rob right now. Oh
1: it, it will look different. In real time, yeah. It will look different. There is no <laughs> if the website doesn't look different at the time no, you this recording. It oh, it will look different.
0: Just making a point.
1: Even if it looks like it's written in crayon by a five-year-old because I had to go in and do it myself, this website will look different by the time this episode drops.
0: 1,000%. But now I've set I've set the B, I've set the T minus X amount of time. It will be done. So with that said, we thank you all for joining us. We have a wonderful 2021 ahead of us because it ain't 2020. So um, tell us what you think
1: of all the new stuff. I can't keep doing it anymore. I'm running out of breath. It's all good. I'm James Atten. I'm Podcast Rob.
0: We'll see you guys next week. Later! Something, 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 something. Okay,
1: here we go.